Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Okay, guys, I'm going to um, I'm going to pray for us, and then Shelly Wood is going to bring our lesson again today. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for what you've taught us already in your word, as we've studied this week, as we've discussed at our tables. God, would you continue to just open our hearts and our minds to receive what you, you have for us today as you speak through Shelly? Would you help her? Would you give her courage? And would you give her... Um, just the ability to, to get through what you have put on her heart to share. God, we want to listen and we want to apply. So would you help us? Would you uh, just fill us to overflowing with your spirit, God, so that we can take this and, and apply it to our lives. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. So I want to see who can quote that verse. Go ahead, do it together. For I think I heard it, at least from up here. For the wages of sin is death, <laughs> but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That was your little test for today. I'm going to pull that away just a little. Um, so I don't know about you. But I have a tendency to want to rush right through the first part of that verse um, and get straight to the good part, the second half. Um, the part about, actually, you know, I love the part about a free gift, an eternal life in Jesus. Um, but there was no avoiding the weightier topic, the beginning of that verse this week. As we looked at the graphic picture of what sin actually cost. Um, because I think we forget that sometimes. We forget the first part. And so hopefully as we go through this today, um, our hearts will be filled with more gratitude for the second half of that verse. Um, so I'm gonna, we're going to look at just some truths about sin this morning. And then we're going to focus on um, what God has done with our sin and for our sin. <clears throat> so what we're going to do is the, the first truth I want us to talk about is how sin follows a basic pattern that always ends in death. And what we're going to see in some of the things we talk about is how it begins with desire and then it moves to sin and then ends in death. Um, and so really the decision point is at the desire, right? What we choose to do right there. Um, so I want us to start by going all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3. And let's look at the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Um, we're going to see this pattern of desire, sin, death. It's going to be elaborated a little bit more, um, a little more specific um, but we're going to see that same pattern then when we go to, to look at Achan. And then again, when we look into the New Testament at what is said about us and our sin, even as believers, what happens in us. So if you will, turn to Genesis um, chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. But first, I want to read for you something out of Genesis 2. And it's a very clear command that God gives um, to Adam in the garden. 
So he says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So this is a clear command from God, which gives them some freedom of any tree in the garden with the restriction of, but not this one. And then he gives a clear consequence for what's going to happen. Okay, so let's, you know this story, but let's read it anyway. Uh, And I want you to be looking for desire, sin, death. So it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So... We see that this exchange between the serpent and Eve begins with an attempt by the serpent to create a false picture of God in her mind, um, to misrepresent him, to put him in a false light so that he could discredit God in her mind, make him appear different from who he really is. The serpent's goal was to create in Eve this desire um, for something better, to, to make her feel like she was deficient in some way, that somehow God hadn't given her everything, um, to have her mistrust him, to make her think or feel like there was something better than what she had, something that would make her wiser, that would make her more capable, that would make her happier maybe. So next Eve sees the, tr- the fruit of the tree. She sees that it was good for food. So we see, and, and I think you'll, just from your study this week, you're gonna see that, there's the seeing of something. So she sees, and it was pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. So we see the desire come in there. Then she takes it, and she eats it, and then she includes Adam in her rebellion against God, and then they hide. And then a confession finally happens that is filled with a whole lot of blaming and a lot of finger pointing. Um, but it's forced out of them by God. He draws that out of them. It's not willingly given. Um, They're cut off from God. They're banished from the garden, and the sword of God's judgment stands between them and the tree of life. Instead of this special wisdom or insight that the the serpent had told her would happen and that Eve was desiring, um, instead they receive alienation and death. So now, let's look ahead to what you studied this week in Joshua. Um, So just to kind of give a little bit of background or in case some of you maybe didn't get a chance to read it, but um, so we're we're coming to the point where Joshua and Israel are on the verge of another battle after they've had the conquest of Jericho. And the writer at the beginning of the chapter lets us know that there's sin in the camp of Israel, but Joshua doesn't have knowledge of this. 
And I, I struggle with this a little bit, but I can't help but believe that if he had inquired of God, that God would have told him that. I don't think God hides our sin. Um, if, if there is something like that, I don't think that he intentionally withholds that necessarily. Um, so I, I have to believe that if Joshua had inquired, that God would have revealed that to him. Um, but for whatever reason, Joshua does not know. So um, he's not made aware of the hidden sin. And so Israel goes into battle. 36 men die at the hands of the men of Ai. And then Israel flees. They run from their enemies. They run scared. And this time the tables turn and it's their hearts are the ones that are melting in fear like water. And I thought a little bit about that, like, do I know what that feeling is of being so afraid of something that your heart feels like water, like it's melting like water? Um, I don't want to feel bad. <laughs> the shame of Israel must have been great in, in fleeing, um, running from their enemy, especially coming off of the conquest that they had had in Jericho. Um, and we hear that shame echoed in Joshua's prayer because he says, Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name, O God? And this, all of this is because of Achan's sin, one man's sin. So I want us to compare the progression of Achan's sin to the sin in the Garden of Eden. Um, so we're going to do the same thing where we go back and let's look at the commandment that was given. And that's actually back in Joshua 6. It was part of what we saw, I guess, last week. Um, so it begins with a clear command in Joshua 6, 18 and 19. He says, but, keep, but you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So we see very clearly, if you do this, you will bring destruction on all of Israel. One person can bring destruction on all of Israel. Um, but all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So God knew this was going to be a temptation for them, right? That as they go through Jericho, they're going to see all of these things that they're going to potentially want. And so God knew the, the weakness that they had, the temptation um, that was going to be there for them. And so he makes sure to give them that clear directive of you're not to take this. Because in their conquest of Canaan, Jericho is their first fruit city. It's the, they were to take that and it, everything, the spoils of um, the gold and silver and iron and bronze, I think, were to go into the treasury of the Lord. So taking any of those spoils was stealing from God. Um, so here is Achan's confession. No. Oh, well, here is Achan's confession. <laughs> um, let me read it to you really quick. Apparently I didn't put that on the slide. I thought I did. So he confesses in Joshua, kind of in the middle, Joshua 7. He says, um, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. 
When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So we see that same progression again. Achan sees the spoils, a beautiful cloak from Shinar. So this would have been like a Babylonian robe. Um, I try to think of like a cultural equivalent for us and so it might be like, I don't know, some kind of, I'm not into designer stuff, but some designer coat or something that, or maybe something that would have been worn by the Queen of England. So it was probably something, uh, some kind of robe that belonged to a king of Babylon um, that was made of different colors, most likely had gold woven into it, um, which we talked about this at our table. Um, it's kind of, kind of amuses me a little bit to think about like, what was he going to do with this? Um, like, I don't know, maybe he was thinking he would pull the gold out and sell it, or I don't know. I'm just picturing like, how did you think no one was ever going to know that you had taken this? But isn't that how sin is? You know, you think about our sin, it doesn't make sense. Like in the beginning, it's very desirable. And then later you're like, what was I thinking? Like, why did I think that would turn out differently? But anyway, that's just a side note. So he also sees the 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Um, and he says, when I saw among the spoil, so he has that temptation that begins when he sees the spoil, um, the gold and the silver and the robe. And I can imagine that he probably began rationalizing in his mind in the same way that Eve did, maybe even out loud to someone nearby about, it's just a few things. Nobody's going to miss it. What difference does it make? I mean, think about some of the rationalizing that he could have been doing. And maybe it all happened in here, but oftentimes that's exactly where it starts, right? We see something, we begin rationalizing. Well, it's not really that big of a deal. What's it going to matter? Who's it going to hurt? Um, so I can imagine that Aiken is doing that in his mind, even though the scripture doesn't say that. But Aiken clearly, though, through his actions, we see that he doesn't trust God that he doesn't believe that what God says he will do, that he will actually do. Um, he longs clearly for something besides what God has already provided. And also clearly, God is not his supreme treasure, that he's treasuring something above God. He sticks around long enough looking to then begin to covet. And so that's that desire that then turns to sin. And none of this was foreign to Achan. You know, we might want to think, oh, well, maybe he didn't know. He knew. These, all of these are commands that have been given and clearly stated to him. So he does know. Um, so then he takes them just as Eve took the fruit, and then he hides them. So we see that pattern of desire that turns to sin, and then our tendency to want to hide that. That's such a part of our nature to, oh, I did this, now I want to hide it away. Um, so we'll get to the death part for him in a minute. Um, Matthew Henry writes, had Achan looked upon these things with an eye of faith, he would have seen that they were accursed and he would have dreaded them. But looking on them with an eye of sense only, he saw them as goodly things and he coveted them. So I think that's a good lesson for us, that when we look at things with, without an eye of faith, we look at it from a, a very worldly perspective, 
then that's when temptation has an opportunity to turn into sin. Um, in James 1, oh, well, this is my problem. That was my other verse. Okay, we're just going to skip through. <laughs> okay. This is where we are. So James 1, 14 and 15, we're going to see the same pattern of sin here. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So James here is um, discussing, first of all, just how in life we have trials. Um, so that in the scripture that comes before this, he talks about that you will have trials. And that's part of Christ, um, God bringing us to our maturity in Christ. And that God promises that he is going to be with us in those trials. So God brings trials into our lives. That's, that is a truth. But within those trials, we're also going to experience temptation, which does not come from God. Temptation, as this says, comes from our own evil desire. So the trials come, that's God bringing us to maturity, and then the temptation comes from our own evil desire. So we cannot say, God, you are tempting me. We have to know that that's coming from ourselves. And he promises that in those trials, he's going to give us wisdom generously so that we can persevere under those trials. Um, so trials are part of our Christian life. But temptation is also part of our life as sinful humans. These verses remind us that when we face temptation, we have to have a right view of who God is. He is not the one tempting us. We must also have a right view of ourselves. Um, that in our sinful state, without Christ, we are Eve and we are Achan. We are no different from them. We like to think that we are, right? It was... Actually, in reading this this week, I had to keep reminding myself, and we said it a bunch at our table, this is us. This is us. This is me. This is how I am. Because we kind of like ourselves all cleaned up and neat and hidden away, but we are Eve and we are Achan. We have a tendency to distrust God and decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. We sometimes believe that God is not who he says he is. Sometimes we believe that we can hide who we are from him. We rebel against him. We reject him. We disobey his commands. We are sinful. We are deceptive. We are wayward. We're fearful. We are alienated from God and we're dead in our sins. Nothing good lives in us. We need to remember that. We're tempted by our own desires. We are lured and enticed by what we know is wrong, yet we want it anyway. That's the weird thing. Like we know it's wrong, but something in us wants it anyway. The temptation itself is not the sin, though. But the moment we go after something that we know is wrong, then sin is conceived. So Francis Chan, in a study of James, elaborates on the imagery here in James 1.15. This imagery of conception, birth, and death. And he says that it's like a stillborn birth, which has to be truly one of the most painful experiences someone can go through because you have this time of anticipation of a baby being born and then instead of life, there's death. So in the same way, that just breaks my heart to even think about it. In the same way, sin deceives us into believing 
that there is life on the other end of the desire and the sin, that there is um, excitement or satisfaction or pleasure or happiness or some kind of fulfillment that we get from that sin. And as the sin goes on and grows and it's ready to be born, instead of giving us what it's promised, it delivers death to us. So what we thought was going to be so great is now so awful and sad and miserable. Sin can look so good in the beginning, can't it? But every single time, it will lead to death. The, the other thing that we need to remember is that sin affects more than just the sinner. So we live in such an individualistic society. We think that what I do is my business. It only impacts me. And my decisions are mine and mine alone. Um, so if we choose sin, we think that we're going to pay the price. It's, it's mine to deal with. But that's not true at all. The impact of the sin of Adam and Eve has reached us all. The very first sin has reached all of us. Because sin entered the world through Adam's sin, our basic propensity to fall prey to the deceitfulness of sin is now in our own being, just as Jeremiah reminds us that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The sin of Achan impacted not only himself, but all of Israel. His clear rejection of God's command led to the death of 36 people. It brought shame on Israel because they could not stand before their enemies. It brought, um, it threatened the very presence of God even being with them. And then finally, Achan's family, his animals, all of his possessions are destroyed. They are stoned at the hands of the people of Israel and then burned. And I cannot even imagine having to be a part of that. But what a reminder had to be imprinted on the Israelites' minds that the wages of sin is death. One commentator said that, um, that we, as Christians, um, may believe that this is unfair, and naturally we can complain, but we do better to fear. Fear because one man's sin turned away God's presence from a whole people. Fear because a man's whole household was drawn into his punishment. We typically have such a tame view of sin Wrongly, we have no paranoia over its contagious power. Paul tells the church in Galatia, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. We must be on guard against sin, because any sin injures the church. The church is the body of Christ, and when one part suffers, the whole body suffers. So the effect of sin goes far beyond the individual who's, who commits it. As the body of Christ, what is our responsibility to each other? We cannot live under the lie that our own personal sin doesn't affect those around us. We see the fallout of hidden sin throughout our churches today. Hebrews 13.3 says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that word encourage actually means warn. Like I think of it as like, you go, all right. But it means warn, admonish, urge, help stand firm. And this is not something that happens just once or twice. It's ongoing day after day after day, this encouragement, the warning, the admonishing, 
the helping to stand firm. And that's what we do here, right? I mean, I, the encouragement that I gain from being here on a Thursday morning is immeasurable. And, and that's part of the reason why um, we're called to do that. Sin is deceitful, and the enemy does not take a break from deceiving. So we can't take a break from encouraging one another, which is why we're told in Hebrews 10.25 to not give up meeting together because we need each other, and we need the encouragement to be on guard against sin. Um, as individuals, we need to be in the habit of coming before the Lord, asking him to search our hearts and to reveal any unrighteousness that is there. God's word calls us to confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. We are also called to confess our sins to one another and to pray with one another. I fear that we're at a time in our Christian culture where instead of grieving our own sin and the sins of our sisters in Christ, that we kind of do a little pat on the back, make a joke about it, make light of it, make a t-shirt about it, <laughs> write a book about it, and, and act like it doesn't grieve the heart of God. But I want to encourage you to forge some relationships with other women who will hold you accountable and will in love call out sin in your life because we need it. We desperately need it. Um, why do we need it? Because sin hardens the heart but God will reveal all sin. Achan's hardened heart to sin is evident throughout this whole process. He fails to come forward when Israel is routed and men die. He fails to confess when the people are commanded to consecrate themselves, um, even when Joshua outlines exactly what God is gonna do the next day. He still hides his sin. I, and I can't wrap my mind around that, but I know I'm in there, that that's me too, um, that I can be like that. Um, there's also opportunity for anyone who has knowledge of what Achan did to step forward. Anybody who assisted him, anybody who saw him. It's hard for me to believe that Achan carried this out all by himself without someone having knowledge of it, but they don't. And then the following morning, Joshua does just as he said he would do, and he calls out the tribe, and then the clan, and then the household, and then the man. And I'm telling you, as I read that scripture again and again and again through the week, the dread that would build inside of me, just as I read it, like actually would make me feel sick to my stomach. I would think, what was that like for him to just be standing there knowing what he had done? But that, I think that just speaks to the hardness of his heart that came through the deceitfulness of sin. Um, all of this is done in the presence of God before the Ark of the Testimony. This is not Joshua who is calling out Achan. It is God who is doing it. And we look, um, there are scriptures, and these are just two of them, that talk about how God will reveal every hidden thing. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is no sin that will remain hidden in the presence of God. This is something I pray for myself. Um, I pray it for my husband, for my kids, that we would be sensitive to sin in our life, that we would not have hardened hearts to that, that our sin would be brought into the light so our fellowship with God can be restored because sin stands between us and God, that unconfessed sin, and so that our fellowship with each other can be restored. Um, so I want to share just uh, very briefly, because I'm about to run out of time, 
Um, just something that, just a struggle I had last year, which um, we were asked when we studied Hebrews, we were asked to share like something that we got from the lesson, something that was impactful to us from the whole study of Hebrews. And so Hebrews 2.17 was something that really impacted me. It's where um, the word is describing Christ. And it says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So I've read that passage of scripture so many times before, and I've always focused on God, Jesus helps me when I'm tempted. I focused on that latter part. Um, but I had a view of Christ and temptation that was incorrect. Because that first part I really stood out to me um, because I've always kind of viewed Christ when it came to temptation as like, like a superhero with a shield and like stuff's coming at him. And he's like, no, no, no. But that scripture says that he suffered when he was tempted. So I started asking myself like, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, suffered when he was tempted? There was a struggle there, right? And I, so then I had to ask myself, when, when do I suffer when tempted? And I'm telling you, I could barely come up with anything, which was startling to me because I'm not that good. <laughs> I'm not good at all, actually. And I thought, so what's going on? If I, if if Jesus Christ suffered when he was tempted, why am I not suffering? So what is wrong? So um, what I found when I reflected on it was that I had some sin in my life that I had trivialized. There were these little pockets of sin where I had just said, that's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. And so I wouldn't even fight against it. I'd just give into it just easily, just like that. And I would give it very little thought, lots of justification, just not a big deal at all. So my view of sin and how God viewed sin had become severely warped, leading me to this place of complacency. And I am so grateful for God's word that is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness because it was through his word that he got my attention. So of course, pretty soon after, like he always does, I was tested on that. So I was in a situation where someone close to me had been treated unkindly by someone and it was someone who had a history of, of being unkind. And so long story short, I took up an offense for that person and got very angry. And in my mind started this whole process of like, that's not right. And thinking of every wrong thing this person had ever done. And it was all right here. And um, I got in the bed that night and I still had it just rolling around in my mind. And I was making plans, plans of the things I was going to say the next day. And then the Lord said, this is what I'm talking about right here. This is it. Here's the temptation. Why aren't you resisting it? Why aren't you taking these feelings and putting it up next to my word so that I can correct it? Why are you not thinking of how I've commanded you to behave in these situations and asking me for help? 
So I felt so completely justified in what I was feeling as I began to pray for the strength to let that go completely, to allow God to handle the things that were going on because he was showing me that it was not my place. This spiritual battle took place that was so intense that it made me weep. And do you know why? I wish I could say it was because my heart was broken over my sin, but it wasn't. It was because I didn't want to let go of it. I was actually holding on to to that sin like it was a treasure. And God revealed to me, gave me this picture of like, here are these things through this trial that I'm wanting to bring to the surface and you want to gather them up. Like I want to destroy them. You want to gather them up and keep them like they're a treasure. So you're treasuring what I want to destroy. And in that moment, I was able to let go. So we can be like Achan, grasping in sin what God intends to destroy. All right, eek, sorry. So here's the part of Romans um, 6.23 that we love. Jesus Christ took the wrath of God for us. With the death of of Achan, God's wrath is satisfied and his anger is turned away from Israel. A heap of stones is left over the spot of execution and a new name is given to this place. It's now called the Valley of Achor, which means Valley of Trouble. This heap of stones in the Valley of Trouble stands in stark contrast to the other heap of stones left at Gilgal after Israel crossed the Jordan, which was a memorial for Israel to tell their children. But but both of these piles of stones have the same message, which is the hand of the Lord is mighty and you should fear the Lord your God forever. We need to be reminded that we are deserving of God's wrath, yet he has turned his anger away from us because of Christ. Where Achan died for his own sin so that Yahweh's wrath would be turned away from God's people, Jesus did not die for his own sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Both Jesus and Achan were executed to turn away God's wrath. We sinners are deserving of the fate of Achan, but we were freely forgiven and brought into God's family through the breathtaking and humbling act of substitution by Jesus Christ. And the Valley of Achor is mentioned in Hosea 2.15. It says, I will make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. Jesus has become our door of hope out of the valley of trouble that sin has landed us in. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Our gratitude for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ should compel us to walk in obedience to his word. Our obedience does not save us, but it is a clear mark of those who have been redeemed. Just as Joshua prayed, our concern for sin in our lives should be, what does it do for your great name, God? What does it do for your glory? And then this last little bit, I'm gonna go through very quickly because I have one minute. God can take what was once our shame and use it for his glory. So the picture of this that I love is that um, the Israelites were fleeing and that was their shame, right? They were, that was embarrassing to Joshua, so much so that he mentions it in his prayer to God, that he, he, what will you do, Lord? Because they are running. So that is their shame. And it's so neat to me that God takes that shame and uses their fleeing as part of the victory plan for them to, to defeat AI. And so God does that in our own life too. So with our sin and our shame, that can, when he redeems that, that becomes our testimony that um, will speak of God's glory and of his great name. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you have redeemed us, Lord, that you 
have looked past our sin and you saw our need and you gave us Jesus. Lord, help us um, to just allow you to shine uh, your light of truth into our hearts, Lord, so that we um, can have our sin revealed, Lord. We don't want to, to walk with in sin or with sin. Um, Lord, we want to... Um, Lord, we want to follow you, and I just pray that um, you would reveal sin to us so that we can just confess it to you and allow you to um, just restore us to a right relationship with you. And I just thank you so much for your word that, um, that we can study and that helps us to see you clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.